this evening have the opportunity we hear it. What bar did we make? The brothers from the uh, Worth Abbey in what is it in East Sussex or come here to spend some time in Buddhist monastery. time where we can uh, contemplate and reflect upon Dhamma, or Dhamma is the Buddhist term for the way things are. We're, we're reflecting and contemplating uh, using this ability of our minds to, to look and think and ponder into it. saying previously at tea time that this is uh, in the history of humanity uh, in a country like this uh, we're not going to forced into religious positions we're not the society the the uh, religion itself uh, is not uh, doesn't have the power or the ability to kind of make us believe in things or to punish us if we don't in some ways it makes our, our life, uh, in, in some ways we, we lack religious fervor or, or people can more or less just choose not to even consider religion of any sort or just to dismiss it or push it aside as many people do in modern society, modern life. But also it gives us a chance to, to look more deeply, to consider, contemplate, ponder the meaning of life and spiritual aspiration from different perspectives. We don't have to just see it from a particular angle or one particular view. So in, in that way it's a very good time, uh, very fortunate to, to have opportunities where we can ask about the meaning of life and what happens after death and the purpose of it all. And is there an ultimate reality or God or isn't there? Or what is our, what is our position in this vast mysterious universe? And how do we relate to it as individuals? And these are kind of questions, are questions that, that uh, we're not trying to answer with uh, various views and opinions or ideas or doctrines, but they're the very questions that help us to kind of ponder and look at that which we're experiencing. Uh, and being conscious, feeling, having intelligence, having a memory, a human body, all of this, what is it about? What is it? Uh, what is its meaning? What is its purpose? How, how do we relate? How do we uh, learn from this experience of birth, life to death? And what can we really know and learn from 
our human existence. Now the uh, say Buddhism, Buddha, Buddha Dhamma approaches the religious question almost from the exact opposite, polarized opposite from the, uh, a theistic religion. In the theistic religions, one tends to start with metaphysical uh, statement, so that one is one says, "I believe in God," as a kind of basis or foundation for one's religious life. And so the, this, this metaphysical approach is one, one way, and that's what mainly theistic religion, uh, uh, that's, its, that's the way it uh, thinks, and that's, its logic stems from its metaphysical statements. Uh, so, so God becomes the, the kind of initial uh, statement and belief. Where Buddha, the Buddhism, uh, the Buddha avoided ma making metaphysical statements. And, uh, and these kind of questions about the existence or non-existence of God were, were, were never answered, either positively or negatively. The Buddha remained silent and refuse to answer, or, or take, uh, or, or propose any kind of metaphysical teachings, uh, or metaphysical speculation. What he, what he started from was a, a, what we call truths, noble truths, which are to be investigated and uh, to be understood, to be realized. And these, these noble truths are existential truths. They're about existence. They're, they're common to everyone. They're not, they're not metaphysical truths. They're called noble truths. So the first one is, of course, on the truth of, of suffering, because suffering is the common ex experience uh, to every living being to all existence. Not that it's a, uh, recognize it's not a metaphysical truth, so it's not saying, we're not coming from a position that all is suffering. Uh, and that's where many people get Buddhism very misunderstand it, uh, misinterpreted, because they, they're comparing it, uh, they're, they're saying that a noble truth is a metaphysical truth, which is, of course, not the case. So, and the, we're not saying all is suffering as a, as a, as a kind of statement that, that there is only suffering and that's all there is. Because that would be the most kind of dismal, depressing religion that you could possibly conceive of, if that was what, Buddhism, what the Buddha proclaimed. So a noble truth is to be understood uh, it's not a belief. It's not, you don't believe in suffering. We don't have to believe in it because we, we experience it. And uh, it's so, so that 
suffering is something that we uh, can investigate and contemplate, reflect upon our own uh, experience of suffering, just our own feelings of frustration or or uh, fear or anxiety or just the discomforts of the body, uh, feeling cold or too cold or too hot or hungry or thirsty or it's pain, wanting things we we don't have and not wanting what we have. Um, all these are common to every human being, from the first, uh, first human being, from Adam to present company. And I'm sure that this is something that no one will refute. So suffering then is, is something to ponder, reflect upon, uh, and, and therefore, it's it's not it's not believing in suffering, but using this using our minds in this in this way of contemplation and reflection. So what this means is we're really we're taking our own experience. We're not taking a kind of an abstraction of suffering, like suffering is uh, as if it were you know it's somebody else that experienced it, or it's some kind of great. Uh, abstraction in, out there in the universe. Uh, we're not, not talk, thinking about suffering in, in a kind of macrocosmic uh, total view of it, but in, in, in the suffering that we experience, even if it, even if it doesn't seem uh, like very significant suffering, it might seem just, uh, we, we, we might even dismiss our own suffering as not being worth bothering with. Some people do that, don't they? They just uh, don't. of course I don't suffer. Little things don't, but we do. We we suffer a lot uh, over all kinds of things, and uh, we can see it very, very clearly in, uh, in I think in societies such as this one, where uh, one's own suffering is cannot be so easily blamed on on external causes. Sometimes if you don't get enough to eat and you're under a kind of tyrannical uh, social system and government and, and uh, a lot of uh, you know, unfairness and injustice and fear and tyranny in a society, you can blame your suffering on the government, on, on the husband or wife, on children, on, on uh, the neighbors, or the fact that you're born in a in a in a, in a low lower class, or that you were born with a, you know not perfect and missing something or other, you can say I'm suffering because uh, because of this and because of that. But say most of us uh, find that our suffering can't really be blamed on anything all that much. You can't. You know, one can say, well, my parents weren't totally wise and they did make mistakes, it's their fault that I suffer, somehow it seems, doesn't have much force behind it. It's hard for me to convince myself that, that if my parents were fully enlightened arahants and perfect, uh, then I wouldn't be suffering now. 
realize that that's just not the way life is. And that uh, one can see that even if I had more of the better things of life, if I, you know, had uh, all the things I can imagine would be best, if I am, you know, really marvelous looking appearance and lots of money and social status and, and all the best of the best, would I really not suffer then? And I know that I still would. <laughs> so we can, we can see that, that the suffering of our lives is, is uh, we, can, we can see that, that our experience of life brings us pain and there's a natural experience of that just getting old or the weakness and degeneration of a, of a human body, loss of loved ones is a lot of suffering for us. Loss of those we love, separation from the love is, brings us a lot of anguish and despair. Or having to be with the things and people and situations that we don't like or don't want is suffering. Wanting something we don't have is suffering. So we ponder this, we contemplate this in our, here in a, in a, in a monastery, we, we reflect upon the fact that uh, what is the suffering here at Chithurst? And uh, is it uh, the food, is it the, the um, senior bhikkhus, is it the, the uh, lay people, is it uh, are we being oppressed and persecuted by the society around us? Are we, is there something uh, really here at Chitters that is so bad that we, if it were gone, we wouldn't suffer anymore? So we, uh, we can contemplate this. The, the, the English weather, the climate here, we can, we can make a lot of things, we can think of, we wouldn't suffer so much if it were sunnier or warmer or not so damp. And we can complain about the weather. We can think that possibly if we were in a climate that was drier, warmer, sunnier, not so cold. But then most of us have had opportunities to go and live in climates like that, ideal climates, and we still suffer. I remember living in Hawaii for three months. I suffered there. <laughs> suffered more there than I do here. <laughs> Lived in California for years, and and uh, you know I've thought places that I thought thought I would least suffer, and I've often suffered the most. So I realize it is not climate, or I mean these things are levels of comfort or discomfort, but they're not, they're not really major issues or the causes of our misery. The cause of our misery and suffering is, isn't due to external things, but to uh, the wrong, not understanding things properly. And so that when, as long as this not understanding things properly exists, then we create suffering even with the very best of the best. If, we, if the Buddha was here and all the best of the best 
where, where suddenly we found ourselves as the, the best that you can possibly ever want and expect in life. But we still had the wrong understanding, the wrong view of ourselves and the universe we live in. We, we create a lot of suffering around having the best and the Buddha and the whole lot. I'm sure of that. Some people, uh, no matter what we do, no matter how fortunate, how many prizes we win or how many, much praise we get, we still create suffering. Why? Because there's the, the, the main view that causes suffering is, has never been seen, never been uh, observed, never been realized, never been relinquished. We've never really relinquished the cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering then is the truth of the cause of suffering is the second noble truth, which is the, the uh, grasping of desires. We have desires and we grasp these desires. And as long as we, as long as we grasp desires, then we, we're going to suffer. Then the, these desires are, so we need to know what desire is. Now the, the dogmatic view is that we shouldn't have desire. Buddhists believe that you shouldn't have any desires. And of course that sounds almost impossible. And how can we ever expect, uh, no matter how hard we practice or try, to not have any desires? Because the realm we live in is a desire realm, isn't it? It's, well, we, the, the attractions and repulsions of the sense world and the, uh, just the, the human body itself, the emotional natures we have. I mean, it's, it's, it's a setup for desire. And we got here because of desire. So, I mean, it's not, it's, it's trying to, to say we shouldn't have any desires. It's like saying we shouldn't be alive. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't breathe. The only way then would be suicide. Then Buddhism would be, would, the answer to the whole thing would be to, to commit suicide. But the Buddha forbade monks to commit suicide. That's an offense against our discipline. If we, if we commit suicide, we have to confess it. <laughs> so desire then is to be investigated, and in the, in the second noble truth is this, is this uh, kind of. Uh, Investigation. We look at the sensual desire, gama dunha, desire for sense pleasures, and bhava dunha, desire for becoming, and vipava dunha, desire for getting rid of annihilation. So we 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 contemplate, we ponder on these desires we have in this life. When we're sitting here, well, like if having pain, we can say if you feel. You're sitting here and you're feeling uh, physical discomfort. And then you can, 
you can ponder that, this, this physical discomfort, this sensation of pain that, uh, that I'm experiencing is this way. We can be aware of, a, of the fact that we don't want it. That maybe now, I'm, I mean, I, I don't want this physical pain. We can contemplate that, the, the physical pain, and we begin to see uh, the, the desire arising not to have it. What is the suffering? Is the, is the physical pain the suffering? Or is the desire to get rid of the pain and the following of that desire, the grasping of that desire, is that the suffering? So this, is a, this is a reflection. It's not that we should want pain or, or that we shouldn't have the desire to get rid of pain, but we're, we're looking at, we're investigating the experience of physical discomfort or physical pain and emotional reaction to it, which tends to be generally desire to get rid of it, get away from it, not have it. So in this way we, we can see that that, that, that which, uh, that the actual sensation is the way it is, it's, it, it feels this way. But the real suffering, at least I've found from my own reflections and meditations on this experience of physical pain, the suffering is around not wanting it that as long as I blindly follow the desire to get rid of pain and not be, have any discomfort, I can, I feel miserable, emotionally miserable and unhappy. If I learn how to, to not create that desire to get rid of it, or, or the sensations are strangely bearable and even uh, sometimes dis dissolve. That uh, I remember when I was uh, much younger and uh, sitting, uh, I found I had a lot of physical pain when I first became a monk. A lot. <clears throat> and I was much younger then and, and healthier. And so I, I had, but yet physical pain. There was so much resistance, uh, so much. Uh, just heedlessness in regards to physical sensation, that I'd create a lot of tension around physical pain. As soon as I started feeling any pain, I'd start resisting it. And of course in Buddhist monasteries in Thailand, you have to endure through a, like sitting in this way, this, this polite posture. Uh, you have to sit this way when you're listening to a, to a monk give a talk. Ajahn Chah used to give talks for three or four hours sometimes, and used to sit like this uh, in this polite posture. It was excruciating. And my mind would go into anger and even, you know, you could feel murderous. Wanted to murder Ajahn Chah sometimes. <laughs> and that, this kind of, uh, and I, when you're angry, when you're in pain and you're angry and you want to get rid of it, you hate everyone. I look at all the monks, and all the lay people, I'd hate them all. <laughs> I wanted to murder everyone. This is suffering. So co contemplating that and, and recognizing it, one began to see you could somehow, um, you know, if you were more patient and, 
and willing to bear with discomfort, then uh, you, could, you could actually uh, learn to let go of this tendency to, to create this desire to get rid of things. You had, to be, you had to work with it. It wasn't just suddenly it, it stopped. But you, you, you learned how to, to reflect upon and contemplate it and recognize it, get to know it so well and learn from it until it eventually this, this particular kind of desire, uh, say reaction, emotional aversion to physical discomfort, lessened and faded. And then the result was that the body would relax more and the conditions for pain would, wouldn't, wouldn't arise or diminish considerably. So that was through not trying to conquer pain as an act of will and annihilate it, but through understanding the process of, of uh, the, the human experience of physical pain, discomfort, and the emotional reaction of aversion to it, and being able to realize that uh, the, the physical pain, maybe we have to accept that. But the emotional aversion and this blind re reaction to it, we can, we can relinquish, we can let go of that. One of the main, the, the main delusion we, we have is uh, self-conceit. And this, this sense of I am uh, is a very, uh, we all have it. And this I am this person, this body, I am uh, this being here. I am a, a monk, or I am a man, or I am uh, all kinds of things. And then there's the I shoulds and I shouldn'ts, and I must and mustn't, ought and ought not. There's the ideals, what I should be. Uh, you know, I should be, a monk should be, uh, you know, compassionate, filled with metta, he should be patient, he, he should keep the rules, he should um, be content with little, uh, he shouldn't uh, be envious or jealous of others. He should be, uh, you know, uh, have, have a lot of uh, uh, work hard and, and practice hard, and he should do all kinds of these wonderful, virtuous, have all these virtuous qualities. That's the shoulds of what I should be as a, as a monk. So that is, a, is another form of suffering, isn't it? Comparing the experience of life with the ideals you have about how it should be or you should be. So we, in, in the Western society, I think we're very idealistic, like Americans, or uh, our society in the state is a very idealistic society. It's, it's filled with, this, with these shoulds of how life should be and how men should be, women should be, and uh, every, everything should be. And then the, the actual experiences of life, somehow, we, we feel always uh, ill at ease and disappointed or averse or critical of ourselves in the world we live in because life isn't what it should be. 
as an experience. There's the ideal. We can, we can create ideals, utopian ideals, perfect images of how everything should be. That's quite a marvelous gift that we, we can actually imagine perfect perfection of, you know, of, uh, and be able to, to imagine virtues, like being perfectly compassionate and kind, to be full of, uh, to be perfectly wise, to be uh, totally unselfish. These are, these are ideals in our minds, and they're very beautiful, but they're, they're also perfect in themselves. They're, you're taking the possibility, say, of human behavior, and taking it to, its, to a perfect position of total and complete, like completely patient and completely compassionate, completely enlightened, perfect perfectly realized, and these words are superlatives, aren't they? Like perfect and ultimate and complete, and virtues such as, as uh, compassion and loving-kindness and love and joy and, and uh, all the rest of the, the, the lovely qualities that we admire, and we can take them to, to and, and, and use these, these superlatives superlative forms. Now that is the function of the mind, isn't it? it, it the, we, we can create these perceptions of, perce- of perfection. But as, a, as the realities of a daily life existence is this way, isn't it? It's not perfect. There's not, nothing is perfect uh, as a condition in itself, in daily, in our own experience of life, the human body, the the the, the feelings we have, the the um, sensory realm itself, the the emotional condition, emotional reactions, and and all of this uh, are what they are. They're 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 not perfect. They're always in the process of changing. You can't, you can't keep anything. You can't create a perfect place, a perfect country, a perfect relationship, a perfect situation, and hold it to that, to, to where it, it is perfectly perfect on a permanent basis. It, everything is changing. Whatever, whatever maybe it re, the best we can have or maybe peak experiences in life. I mean, we have certain highs, certain peak moments where everything is, seems perfect maybe, but then it changes. So because of that, if we don't ponder and reflect upon our own experience and the way things are, then we, we become frightened and worried and anxious because even when we have the very best, uh, and everything is going well for us, and we're at a peak of our life experience, we also know it's going to change. And then we know that once it reaches its peak, it doesn't get better. It's at its peak, peak moment. We know it's going to start getting worse, or degenerating, changing. 
and and there's a kind of grief in that knowledge, isn't it? A sadness. There's a lot of like Shakespeare's sonnets and a lot of poetry is written about the sadness of our human experience, where the the romance, the the ideal relationship is has reached its peak, and we know that the only thing left is its that it changes. It's not going to stay on that high, on that level. So there's a sadness at the loss of the loved or the, the changing from something that's beautiful into something that isn't anymore. And then like the, the beautiful woman that reaches her peak and then she starts not, it starts getting old and is no longer beautiful. There's a sadness in that, isn't there? When, when we, we think, because of, like we can see it in the, in the uh, film world, movie stars and that, attempts to maintain the peak as long as possible. Cosmetic surgery, makeup, the whole lot is, you know, trying to, to give the illusion of a kind of permanent peak of physical glamour and beauty and attractiveness But really, we all know that it's that it, that, it, that that's not the way life is, and there's a there's always a sadness in that knowledge. There's a a, a grief, sense of grief at the way things change. So this can be reflected upon this, this just the suffering we create around the way things change, not wanting them to change not wanting the romance to, to stop, not wanting uh, the, the high to end, the peak experience to, to, uh, to degenerate, to decline. But we can also observe that feeling, isn't it? Because we, we, we can recognize that, that kind of grief or sorrow or despair that comes to us in our lives. We can, we can objectify it, we can ponder it, we can, like the physical pain we have or the, or the uh, diseases or sicknesses we might experience, we can, uh, by, by reflecting on them, by observing them, by accepting them for what they are, then then we, we do not create suffering around them. We don't add to it with, with our ignorance and our desires and grasping in which we get just caught, caught up in, in anxiety and fear, worry, bitterness, resentment about life's experience. Now the I am position is, is an assumption we make, is I am a permanent person. And even though we don't really say that in, the, in, the, in this, that way, I don't, I've never heard anyone say I am a permanent person, we assume that, and that it's an, an assumption of the mind, that I am this person, 24 hours a day, from the time I was born to the present, and I will be this same person 
till I die, whenever that is. So that I, there's an assumption that I am uh, Sumato Bhikkhu all the time. Or I'm this person. I'm a man 24 hours a day from the time I was born, because I was born, uh, my body was, was born in a male form. So I'm a permanent man. From the time I was born to the time I die, I'm a man all that time, 24 hours a day for all those many years. Or I'm an American, a permanent American. Or I'm a permanent Buddhist monk. I'm a permanent type, a certain permanent type of person. I'm a maybe, you know, a mediocre person, or I'm a, a certain uh, quality. You know, maybe I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm more gifted and better than, than the rest. Or I might, on a, a kind of permanent basis, I'm always kind of superior and, and slightly better than everyone else. Or maybe I'm permanently inferior. Uh, maybe there's a, an assumption that maybe I, something went wrong in, in, when I was being delivered, the, the forceps slipped or <laughs> something went off and, and, and uh, I'm permanently damaged. Or the, you, re, you, you see it a lot with people who've taken a lot of drugs, the, in the people that have taken all these hallucinogenic drugs and, and uh, various uh, things that, that they feel, there's this fear that they're permanently damaged through, through all the drug taking that they've done. Or maybe through their sexual activities or their various uh, sins and wrongs that they've done, they're permanently stained or permanently damaged. You see it with, with women who have ab who've had abortions and they're, they're kind of permanently guilty, they're permanently uh, damaged for life because of, of doing something they, they feel might be a mortal sin. So, I mean, we can, this is, this is uh, uh, the, the I am. I am this person who, who did this. I am this person that is this way. And even though we don't say permanent, we maybe assume that. It's not a conscious, like, fully stated assumption. Once we state it, it sounds ridiculous. Doesn't it? It, sound, it sounds absurd when you state it, when you, when you bring it out into language. But, but, but so much of our life isn't clearly stated in so many words. We don't say exactly how we're feeling. We just tend to be caught up in, in emotional reactions through assume, assume, assumptions we make that are never questioned, never uh, examined. And so our lives become, can become quite miserable, full of worry, full of, full of fear, anxiety. So the Buddha advised us to investigate this sense of I am. And this is another mistake people have about Buddhism is that Buddha taught there is no self. Is a kind of not, that's the kind of 
like uh, coming from the uh, doctrinal statement. There's no self, there's no soul, and there's no God. That's like proclamation uh, from above. It's an imperative. Maybe those Christians believe in souls and God and all that stuff, but we Buddhists don't. We have none of it. That's, uh, you get that in uh, a lot of Sri Lankan Buddhism, who have strong reaction to Christian missionaries. Or it's very strong among, among uh, ex-Christians who, who become Buddhists out of aversion to Christianity. <laughs> so you, you get the kind of dogmatic Buddhists. We're atheists. Buddhism is not a religion. We don't believe in God. There's no God and there's no soul. And there's no self. And that's what we believe in. And that, that's not, that's, that's another position, uh, that, an assumption, which is not mindful or wise, is it? It's merely, it's, it's, it's merely uh, grasping a, a viewpoint. So the anatta teaching of, of the Buddha isn't, remember, it's not a, it's not metaphysical teaching. It's not a doctrine. It's a, it's a reflective teaching. When we contemplate anatta, we're not trying to convince ourselves that we, we don't have any self. We're not trying to say, you know, I don't have no self. And, and, and that this body, is, I'm not the body, and and I'm, and uh, because we say, uh, rupang anatta, body is not self. I've got to believe this body is not me. Uh, that can be merely kind of ridiculous and absurd, trying to convince ourselves that we don't exist. But when we when we reflect upon self, we we see that that the self is very much a sense of I am the body. Now, when we contemplate our own bodies, these bodies, we can see that they exist, they're conscious, and, and that, that we don't have to think of them as ours, as me and mine. They, they exist in their own right. I don't have to proclaim it as me. It is what it is in this moment. And occasionally the thought comes, I am this body. Uh, say, before I started meditating, I was assuming that I was the body all the time. This just seemed to be, you know, that's the way, that's what one assumes. I am this, this body permanently. But on reflecting on it, you realize the body is what it is, and then sometimes you, you think, I am this body, I like this body, I hate this body, uh, I, I don't want a body, I wish I didn't have this human body, I wish it were uh, smaller or bigger or thinner or fatter or, or younger or whiter or darker or whatever. And then we, we are caught in the realm of I am the body and I don't like, I, I don't, maybe don't like the body that I am. So that's suffering. But when the body is seen merely as for what it is, through mindfulness. It is what it is. It's a condition that was born, it's conscious, it's this way. We can reflect on it. We can 
objectify the body because it is not ours. It's not self, it's not what I am. If, if I am the body, I wouldn't be able to reflect upon it. Like the body can't reflect upon itself. The body can't, can't contemplate its own existence. But because the body is not me, is not self, then there is this ability to contemplate it, to, to consider it, to, to investigate it. So we're not, we're not trying to believe there's no self, which is a, would be another form of, of attachment. But we're using the, that perception of anatta or non-self as a way of reflecting, of, of investigating all the, the, what we think we are, the beliefs, the assumptions we make about ourselves. So we can break through, we begin to see that, that these assumptions, these, these views, these uh, perceptions we have of ourselves are just that. They're not like, like, I am a man all the time. Ajahn Chah used to, to say, I remember in the early days when I was there, he'd say, uh, you're not a man, you're not a woman. And I think, what does he mean by that, I'm a man? You know, Americans, we spend a lot of time being men. <laughs> and so it's a kind of a strong identity. And so and that's one thing I felt certain about. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wasn't a woman. And I knew, and I was confident that I, I was a man. <laughs> But we're able to get around that. <laughs> I remember when, when men started wearing their hair long in the early 60s in, in, uh, in America, and they, oh, some of the people would get so upset by that. And they, what are you, a girl? You think you're a girl? Or what? And just the idea of a man growing his hair long was just upset people, it threw off the, these kind of perceptions in the, what men are and what women are. And much of us, many, we invest in, in that kind of conservativeness sometimes, in the, to have everything kind of clearly stated and fixed and, and defined. And then when, when something comes in to, to kind of change it or to disrupt it, we can feel panic anger. We want to kill them, burn them at the stake. Uh, because the world, what we've invested in, what we, what we believe in, what we regard as reality is, is, being, is being challenged or being disrupted. And that's very frightening. And we become very frightened by that. When we, when we think of something like we can see it in our own monastic community. Say, if we, we can get very outraged and indignant when somebody comes in and threatens us, threatens to disrupt or break up or destroy our community or our family or things that we, we're very much trying to hold together and preserve. 
and identify with. And when anything comes in that seems to threaten that, we can, I can, I can certainly feel uh, outraged or indignant. Why is that? The I am, isn't it? I, I want, I, this is my, this is the way we, this is what I want, what I want to protect, want to keep, want to hold, want it to be as permanent as possible, wanting to, to uh, say, keep it from being uh, destroyed or contaminated by possible, possi- possible things that would do that. So I am, as a, a, an unquestioned I am, will always take us to this state of fear and worry, anxiety. Now this is for your reflection only. It's not a doctrinal statement. But contemplate your own, your own experiences, your own suffering of when you feel very threatened and, and, and outraged or indignant. These kind of strong emotions. When, when, you're, when something comes at you, into your life that disrupts what you're used to or threatens what you love or, or that, then the reaction is, is emotional reaction can be indignation, wanting to destroy or get rid of that which is the cause, which you regard as the cause, the, th- the big threat. The fear of losing the love, the fear of things changing, of, of fear of losing control of your life, fear of, of, of not being able to, to uh, uh, keep keep it together, make it secure. Now the Buddha did establish monastic life on insecurity. Strangely enough, it's a mon- Buddhist monasticism is based on alms mendicancy, which is, which is, uh, you know, in terms of. Uh, materialist values is a very dodgy thing to base anything upon. And when people heard that I was going to live in, in England as an alms mendicant, they said, oh, you can't do it. Thailand, you can do it, but not in, not in England. Because who's going to, you know, you can't, in Thailand, you go out outside the monastery and people are saying, Please, please, can I put something in your bowl? They're running after you. They're begging you to stop. They're absolutely over the moon if they can put something in your alms bowl. But you walk out the monastery here at Chitras. Walk down Titter's Lane into Midhurst or Petersfield or wherever, and you notice people aren't particularly interested or care whether you're going to have a meal for that day or not. Mm. Alms mendicancy is is uh, is 
is, is, is an act of faith, isn't it? To trust. <coughs> and uh, you, you trust, like, like the, the Buddha, that wherever the, monk, the Sangha is, is good and practices in the right way, then their, their basic requirements will be provided for. Was that just uh, Buddhist idealism? Or was that a universal <coughs> truth? Is that really true? Or is that just maybe India of 2,500 years ago? But still, in, even though you can't walk out the, the gate of Chithurst and, and people run out chasing after you to put food in your alms bowl, yet 15 years in Britain have never once I mean, I've, I've, I've fasted, deliberately chosen not to eat food sometimes, but there's always been plenty of food, of food offerings in the monastery. There's never, never been, uh, in, in Thailand, sometimes I suffered from malnutrition. When you're living in a kind of poor area, I've had malnutrition several times in Thailand, but never in, in Britain. Problem is the reverse. <laughs> get fat here in England. <laughs> Insecurity, uncertainty, unsurety, the unknown, the mystery, isn't it? It's all, this is if we, if we know who we are, I am a man, I am an American, I am a Buddhist, I am this kind of person, I am of this class, I am this type. There's a sense of, there's a, a kind of false security there. Uh, of we know who we are. And that life is this way, England is this way. Uh, England for the English. Uh, white people's values. Uh, Europeans, uh, we don't want any of these these wogs coming in, or these don't want these foreigners or aliens coming in and dis disrupting our 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 wonderful world that we depend on. Here in West Sussex, it's very very English, and and it and a lot of it's very nicely English too. It's not that being English isn't isn't worth preserving. But being attached to the view of being English and wanting things to, to keep, wanting England to, to live forever and be England forever and, and English values preserved forever only breed a sense of fear when, any, when it's threatened, isn't it? We can see it in the National Front type of mentality or the kind of uh, Tory mentality, a kind of conservative attitudes where we want to preserve and you know keep our race pure our nation free from being tainted with others or with other influences racial purity isn't it it's a that's a farce one thing about being an american is you have no illusions about having <laughs> been belonging to any pure race <laughs> but <laughs> But the, uh, 
some in Europe, like Hitler was certainly keen on on the idea of racial purity and uh, did the most unpure things in the name of racial purity and yet uh, and people still can think of wanting to 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 keep keep uh, in, you know not wanting to get into that economic market with all those continental Europeans those French and the German <laughs> that lot you know and you have to we want to keep our own way, and our own pound, and our own uh, culture, because you don't want to mix and and change it. And they and we can be very indignant and very outraged at the possibility of change, because there's this identity: I am, I am English, and uh, we are this way and this is the way we do things and we don't want to change, we want to preserve our way at all costs and then the result will be endless anxiety and fear and resentment and bitterness if, we're, if we don't understand how the mind works then we will, we'll jo all join the National Front So in terms of contemplating the way things are, we can see that, 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 I mean this is from my own reflections, that whatever I attach to out of ignorance, just the force of habit and assumptions and, and uh, the, the, this unquestioned uh, kind of attitudes, prejudices and biases that one is, that might, that is uh, kind of comes from one's mind, conditioned mind, if they're never seen in the proper way, if they're not understood uh, for what they are, then they are the causes of our suffering. And our lives are going to be one uh, experience of suffering, one experience after another. Uh, and and we can see just the, the threats of, of modern, like the changes that have taken place in Europe just this past year. It's rather frightening, it's unknown, it's uncertain. What's going to happen to what was once called the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe? And all these, the poor from the Soviet Union are going to come racing over into Western Europe, swim across the English Channel and flood Britain. In Italy, when I was in Italy, they're all frightened about all these Eastern Europeans rushing into Italy and North Africans coming across the Mediterranean into Italy. And, uh, Italy used to be very proud that it never had any kind of racial problems. And now it can't be so smug and, and uh, sure of itself because it's suddenly quite frightened. Possibility of all those North Africans coming over. And then on the other side are those Eastern Europeans and those Russians, Ukrainians, Azerbaijanis and Armenians and Tajikistanis. Who knows what will come next? <laughs> <laughs> Names get more complicated. Really. 
the Australians, aren't they? They're frightened of, of, uh, of losing white supremacy. All those Asians going to Australia want to, Australia wanting to keep it white. Well, they, you know, the white people took it away from the Aborigines. And then they, <laughs> they want to hang on to it. They don't want to share it with anyone else. I am, we've got to preserve, we must hold this for ourselves. It all comes from this sense of I am. And the result of that then is fear. Wherever there is ignorance, there's going to be fear. It's like we can see, just like death itself can be frightening. Can't it? We can think of death as a frightening thing, or, or the night, or the dark, the unknown, what we, the, the future. It can be frightening, can be terrifying for us. We all know we're going to die, that death is, is something that's going to happen. We all know that we're going to, that our loved ones are going to die, maybe before we do. We all know we have to see um, this, have this separation from the loved. And we all know that this is part of all human experience. And so the identities with, with the conditions of this life, unquestioned identities and assumptions we make, uh, make us always frightened and worried and anxious about our lives. No matter how fortunate or how much control we might be able to exert, and how well we can, can kind of keep everything going, there's still, as long as this ignorance remains, this not understanding of things in the right way, then even with the very best of the best, uh, and the ability to control and get what we want, there's still, the result will still be fear and worry and anxiety. Because that's, that's the way it is. Now the way out of this then is through understanding, understanding it. Because the, we're, we're very much involved with the condition, we're identified with the condition world which is changing, which is mortal. So the aim of the, of the Buddhist realization is realizing deathlessness, and that is through mindfulness. That when, we're, when, we, when, we're, when there is mindfulness, and, the, and there's right understanding, and there's wisdom, then there is the intuitive realization of immortal truth, deathlessness. But it's not, it's not, a, it's, it's a realization, it's not a discovery. It's not something you find, it's, it's a realization is, is, is real. It's reality, ultimate reality is deathless. And then the changing conditions are about death. When we attach to the body and attach to the desire for happiness or desire for security and that, we're actually attaching to death itself. The Buddha had many images of the, of the Lord of Death and how we attach 
identify and hold on to to death, thinking that we're holding on to life. And that's because of the ignorance, not understanding things as that we are, that things as they really are, then we we create these illusions. We delude ourselves. Now the great uh, the beauty of, of this teaching is the fact that we can free ourselves from these delusions. And this is like the, the aim of say, our meditations and the, the purpose of our lives as, uh, as mendicants is not to just become alms mendicants and Buddhist monks and nuns and become Buddhists and as opposed to being Christians or or just to to you know change a costume and and have a different identity and have a different set of of perceptions to to believe in uh, that would be a waste of time wouldn't it if if all that we're doing was would be getting discarding Christianity and becoming Buddhists it'd just be like changing your clothes maybe you're tired of that suit and you want a new one But it's in it's not in in discarding or in acquiring new, but in realizing. And so the, the aim of the Buddhist practice is towards a realization, not an identification, not a becoming. So even the idea of becoming a Buddhist really is a, is that doesn't really make much sense. You 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 can be you can become a kind of Buddhist, I guess, believing in very Buddhist types of things and going around uh, believing you are a Buddhist and you become one but that <laughs> but that isn't that it would be merely another another it could be another form of delusion and attachment but in actually investigating the 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 experience of life of consciousness and feeling and perception and and volition, the human body, the looking deeply, profoundly, examining, investigating into the conditioned realm and the desires we create around it, the identities and the assumptions we make, until these conditions no longer have the ability to delude us. That's why it's mindfulness and wisdom is the way, is the path to the deathless. It's through seeing things, and they are so clearly that there's no way any condition can. Are we going to be deluded by no matter what its quality, and no matter what its uh, uh, importance or triviality or brilliance or or uh, stupidity might be. And that is the, 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 what we say, the way of, of realizing the, the truth, or the Dhamma, or the truth of the way it is. And we realize it's a humbling experience, it's not, it doesn't make, it doesn't, Buddhist meditation, if done in the right way, does not make you conceited. You never become an expert meditator. 
You, even the idea of becoming an arahant or a sotapanna, this, this make, doesn't make any sense. Because you hear Western people read these books, Buddhist books, and they, then they interpret the Pali words and the Pali teachings through their uh, egotistically oriented ways of thinking. So people try to practice in order to become stream-enterers or become arahants. And there's just no way you can become an arahant. So, because you're, you're not, it's not through becoming, but through realizing Dhamma more and more. And it's, it's, it's through meditating and realizing life through the experiences each individual has of it. We're not, we're not trying to seek kind of fantastic situations or perfect conditions or that then any of us have to, you know, ha, you know, have to have something we don't have in order to become enlightened. But it's through realizing the way things are from the way it seems and the way we happen, to, the way we experience life as an individual being to be experienced individually by the wise, to be, to be known through, through our own direct insight into, into uh, the truth with the conditions we find ourselves with, even if they're not very good. You don't have to have the best conditions. In fact, sometimes not having the best conditions is very, is very helpful. And if, you have, if you're too great, too good, uh, it's easy to believe that you're somebody important. I remember talking to one monk recently in Thailand, Western monk, who, a very clever monk, a brilliant mind, and, uh, and he, uh, and he, and he was always, there was always a certain level of conceit there. And so, I mean, he, he was uh, a, a kind of authority on things, and, and, uh, and yet he never really uh, could see uh, that, that conceit until recently. It took him many years to be able to see, because he could do everything better than everyone else. And he was, he had very kind of basically moral uh, nature and he never, uh, you know, did, lived a degenerate life and he's always kind of, you know, first class person from the day one. And so, I mean, sometimes that, that can be a, you know, that, that kind of be, having high standards and being very intelligent and, and being very kind of um, high-minded with high standards can, can be quite deluding because we make assumptions from, from these ideals and, and our own kind of high standards and, and lovely qualities. But in practice in the right way, 
means that 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 we're not going to we're not going to become someone who's better and better, and uh, we're not going to if we're practicing the the, the conceit, uh, the sense of a self is is being constantly we've been constantly reminded of it, and sometimes it is painful, isn't it? To have to really look at things and and let go of things and to to be very patient and to have to look at a lot of um, mental states, emotional reactions that are not very nice. And it's it's humbling, isn't it, to to ha- to bear with some of our own stupidity and immaturity, to have to. Just accept it, and uh, and but then the the joy comes in realizing it is terms of dhamma. That whatever it is, uh, whatever its quality might be, is it is impermanent and it's not self. So the more we we reflect in this way, and contemplate dhamma, then then the resistance to 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 practice uh, falls away. We just feel tremendous gratitude and and willingness to to flow with life and to learn and to to not uh, try to become anything. No longer do we have to try to become or get something or get rid of things. We we we're allowing uh, the vipaka kama, the resultant kama of our lives, to to be that which arises and ceases. We're letting go. We're not, we're not judging, we're not identifying, we're not annihilating. We're actually learning to flow and be with our conscious experience fully and no longer uh, be allowing our minds to be deluded by <coughs> the uh, condi- particular conditions we, we're experiencing. So I offer this for your reflection.